0: Hello, and welcome to Actively Speaking. I'm your host, Steve Bleiberg. Join us each episode as we discuss current issues concerning capital markets and portfolio management from the perspective of an active manager. Okay, well, welcome to another episode of Actively Speaking. Uh, we have a special guest today. Uh, my guest is the new, as of April 1st of this year, CEO of Epic, Philip Pensler. Welcome, Philip. Hello, Steve. And today we're gonna talk about something that sounds kind of menacing. It goes by the name VUCA. Uh, It's a subject that is uh, very near and dear to Philip's heart. So uh, why don't we start off, uh, uh, tell us, Philip, what does VUCA mean and and where did it come from? Sure, Uh, thanks for having me on the show,
1: Steve. So VUCA stands for Volatility, Uncertainty, Complexity, and Ambiguity. And basically describes an environment that is unpredictable. The term was first introduced by the U.S. military after the fall of the Iron Curtain. At the time, the U.S. military saw a shift from a bipolar threat scenario where you had only two opposing systems, one supported by the Soviet Union and the other supported by the U.S. to a multipolar system where you suddenly had many more threat actors to consider. The result was that you moved from a rather stable framework to a situation that was extremely fragile and characterized by VUCA. Okay, well,
0: that's certainly, uh, you know, I, I think, there's no doubt that we're we're living through a period right now of extreme volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. I, it's, a, it's an old cliche in the financial press. You uh, read articles about the market, they love to say, well, you know, markets hate uncertainty, which I always find amusing because it, I think back to my very first day In uh, business school which was back in 1982 and in my first day of the introductory finance class the professor just went to the board and he wrote two words on the board first one was time second one was uncertainty and he said finance is the study of how do we value uncertain cash flows over time and so the truth is yeah markets quote hate uncertainty but there is never certainty in life life is by nature uncertain uh, and we've been living through a period very recently of quite a bit of uncertainty, uh, more so than usual. And you know, finance finance theorists over the years have come up with ways to try to figure out how do investors behave, how do markets work. And the most famous example of this, of course, is modern portfolio theory. And we've talked about some of the limits of that theory in a previous podcast, but I think they are really best revealed in environments like the one we're currently in. So. Philip, uh, talk a bit about how, how this environment we're in right now uh, brings out some of those shortcomings of, of neoclassical economic theory, and, uh, you know, of which modern portfolio theory is, is a part. I think you're right, Steve. You know, when the markets misbehave,
1: the shortcomings of neoclassical economic theory and modern portfolio theory as a derivative of it uh, becomes obvious. And I always thought that the elegance of modern portfolio theory is in its simplicity. But in order for a relatively simple model to accurately describe a rather complex system like financial markets, you have to make some simplifying assumptions. And let me just highlight a couple of those um, assumptions. Uh, modern portfolio theory assumes, for example, a normative worldview which means it describes the world how it is supposed to be not what it actually is for instance it assumes that all market participants have the same stable preferences are perfectly rational at all times and are constantly optimizing their utility function we know from the work that behavioral scientists have done that none of the above accurately describes human behavior furthermore it assumes that history is a good guide for the future and that historic patterns can be linearly extrapolated into the future. While I agree that history can and should inform our decision-making process, it is not necessarily a good predictor of the future. And finally, um, modern portfolio theory assumes that financial market theory is a hard science similar to chemistry or physics, if you will, where we can describe the the relationship between the independent and the dependent variable with mathematical precision. Personally, I would argue that financial markets are social systems where the interactions between humans matter a great deal. These interactions cannot be described with the mathematical mathematical model alone.
0: So, no, I know from my own experience when I raise these sorts of uh, points about about the limits of of theory. one of the responses that the uh, to play devil's here the response you would get from you know like a finance professor at MIT for example, is uh, yes, we are aware, we know that you know people are not actually you know calculating machines they don't sit around you know doing calculus in their head to maximize the utility uh, but what they say is that's that's okay it doesn't really matter and the the analogy you often hear is think about, you know, a baseball outfielder trying to catch a fly ball. When you look at how the fielder moves out in the field, it's, it's as if, and that's a key phrase, as if that outfielder is doing calculus and, you know, calculating the uh, parabolic trajectory of the ball so to know where to go. And, of course, that's not what people really do, what outfielders really do you know, they sort of instinctively know how to move to where the ball is going to be. And so what the economist would say is similarly, yeah, we know that, you know, investors aren't really sitting around doing all these intricate calculations in their head about utility. But what we observe en masse is that on average they behave as if they are doing that. And so therefore our models are good at, at forecasting how the world is going to behave. So perhaps maybe that may be true in, quote, normal times when when markets are kind of, not very volatile but but maybe that breaks down in an environment like this but you know what would you say to that yeah i think it does
1: steve um in extreme environments you can't solely rely on what has worked in the past and many of the models that worked perfectly well during mark normal market circumstances failed us when we needed them the most so we know that these models are not terribly helpful when the markets misbehave But what is probably even more astonishing is the fact that although people realize that these models don't work that well all the time, they continue to be unconditionally committed to them, a phenomenon I would describe as model blindness. In other words, they dismiss information that lies outside the model parameters as irrelevant and as a consequence, no learning takes place. You know, as as part of an academic project I was involved with, I studied investor behavior during times of market distress. Specifically, I asked investors about their experience during the 2009 global financial crisis. Um, Everybody I interviewed told me that all the models they had been using were ineffective, that they needed new thinking and required a radical departure from the past. However, when I asked them what they had done differently during the crisis, I was surprised to learn that they themselves didn't see the need for change at all. As a matter of fact, 80% of the investors in my study continued to rely on a rules-based approach that is centered around the neoclassical economic theory. While this majority of investors were steadfast in their beliefs in modern portfolio theory, there was a small group who showed a heightened degree of contextual sensitivity. And as a result, did much better than their peers. And what was interesting was that they had three very distinct characteristics. First, they had a high degree of alertness and awareness. Second, They were very much present moment focused and third they were non-judgmental when new information emerged and what was interesting was that uh, these characteristics describe a particular form of mindfulness which
0: i thought was quite interesting so so what are the uh, other benefits that we can get from that kind of mindfulness I think they are. I think uh,
1: it really helps us with making decisions under uncertain conditions.
0: Can can you elaborate on that?
1: As we uh, mentioned before, uh, neoclassical economic theory assumes we are all universally rational and continuously optimize our utility function. Well, it seems obvious that we can only optimize an outcome if all future states of the world are known. And unfortunately, that is almost never the case. In 1956, Herbert Simon introduced us to the concept of bounded rationality. And bounded rationality suggests that people are typically very good in making rational choices when the outcomes are known. So for example, Steve, if I were to give you the choice between $1 and $2, I'm pretty sure you will make the right choice and pick the $2 uh, over the $1. But when it comes to decision-making under uncertain conditions, heuristic decision-making, which is using simple rules of thumb, are as efficient as more elaborate or scientific decision-making models. The huge advantage of heuristic decision-making is that it doesn't require perfect information uh, it can be done much faster, and it is contextually sensitive. The two most powerful heuristics that most of us use on a daily basis are follow the majority or follow the
0: successful. Uh, well, could you give, give us like a real-world example of that?
1: Yeah, uh, so you know, imagine uh, my wife and I are planning to go out to dinner. Obviously, a little bit of a, an outrageous assumption during these difficult times. But how would we pick uh, the right restaurant? Well, you know, we could go the scientific route and download all available details on all the restaurants in town, enter our preferences and constraints into an Excel spreadsheet and then run an optimization to determine what the best restaurants uh, are. Or I could simply take my Michelin guide, check what restaurants have the highest ratings and go there which would be an example of follow the successful. As an alternative, uh, I could use another approach, uh, which could be to just go out and see which restaurants are full of people and then try to get a table there. Of course, that would be an example of uh, following the majority. And as you can see, you know, if speed is of the essence, applying simple heuristics is a very effective method and typically yields more than satisfactory results, which makes it a very viable tool for when financial markets are becoming VUCA. when you are faced with with a market meltdown, you neither have the time nor the necessary data to make perfectly informed decisions. What you need to do is make a biologically rational choice that guarantees your survival. And if you want to thrive in asset management, in my opinion, you have to focus on becoming the most adaptable firm and not necessarily
0: the most efficient one. Yeah, I think uh, so that stuff that uh, Herbert Simon talks about, that's, uh, that's a great word I've always loved, uh, satisficing. He, he said people don't try to maximize their utility necessarily, they they are trying to satisfy, meaning it's good enough. It's like, as you say, if you find a restaurant that's doesn't have to be the absolute best as long as it's one that we're going to be happy with. That's fine, and that's anyway. I've always loved that word, uh, satisfied. How do you, how could we apply these concepts you've been talking about uh, more specifically in in the asset management field?
1: That is a very interesting topic and, and and great question, Steve. I think there is some really interesting academic research being done on certain uh, enterprises that are being referred to as high reliability organizations or hros and i think studying those high reliability organization uh, gives us some interesting insights into you know how to operate in a very volatile asset management environment so when when you think of high reliability organization imagine an an aircraft carrier or a nuclear power plant you know they operate in a very stable environment for a very long time until something unexpected happens in their environment which requires them to adapt to a new situation very quickly and transcend beyond historically very successful operating models and the research shows that these high reliability organizations have five traits that allow them to respond to a VUCA environment in a very effective way. And if you don't mind, let me just elaborate very quickly on those five traits and and sure. explain how they relate uh, to asset management. Okay. So um, I think you know the first of these five traits that high reliability organizations display is called you know a preoccupation with failure. And for our firm, for Epic, this means we need to be humble. Overconfidence is deadly in our industry. We have to accept that we can't predict every conceivable outcome. We also need to have some slack built into our operating model that will allow us to react to the unexpected. You know, without any dry powder, you won't be able to respond to opportunities or challenges that invariably get presented to us in market dislocations. Second, they have a reluctance to simplify. At, at Epic, you know, we are trying to be a learn-it-all firm and not a know-it-all firm. We need to have a high degree of intellectual curiosity, especially about the things we've never seen before or events that lie outside our mental models. Challenging one's minds is a necessary condition for a successful asset manager these days. And then the third characteristic that these HROs have is a high sensitivity to operations. This is a very simple, but an incredibly important concept. You continuously have to review your operating model and make sure there aren't any blind spots it is so easy to assume that everything is okay simply because we haven't seen any breakdowns. You continuously need to stress test your operating model and make sure you avoid complacency at all costs. Fourth, they also display a strong commitment to resilience. Let's face it, you know failure is inevitable in our industry. Nobody gets through a career in asset management without failing. That is not necessarily a problem as long as you see failure as a learning moment. I am convinced that why culture and diversity is so critical for an asset management firm. You become more resilient if you have people with cognitive diversity around you that can provide a different vantage point and help you make sense of an unfamiliar situation. And finally, these high-reliability organizations uh, show a deference to expertise. As the leader of an asset management firm, this point is particularly dear to my heart. Many asset management firms have a very rigid vertical hierarchy which lengthens the decision-making process. Here at EPIC, we are trying to create as flat a hierarchy as possible and delegate decision-making authority to the people in the front line. So they can make decisions quickly and in a timely fashion. This only happens if you create a culture of collaboration where people feel safe to make those decisions. So I think you know the point that I'm trying to make, Steve, is that in order to win in asset management, you need this whole brain approach. Using the left, which is the logical and the mathematical side of your brain, and the right, which is the empathetic, emotional side of one's brain, will help uh, us be better prepared and anticipate any further market dislocations.
0: Okay, well, I think we're just about out of time. Uh, so, I've never really thought of uh, myself as uh, working in this industry as being analogous to, you know, being on an aircraft carrier. But you know, I, I like that analogy. Uh, <laughs> so, I want to uh, thank you, Phelps, Thanks again for joining me. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much. And uh, we'll be back uh, soon with another episode. Thanks, everyone. Remember to subscribe to Actively Speaking on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find all of our previous episodes
2: and additional content on our website, www.eipny.com. The information contained in this podcast is distributed for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but not guaranteed. The information contained in this podcast is accurate as of the date submitted, but is subject to change. Any performance information referenced in this podcast represents past performance and is not indicative of future returns. Any projections, targets, or estimates in this podcast are forward-looking statements, and are based on EPIC's research, analysis, and assumptions made by EPIC. There can be no assurances that such projections, targets, or estimates will occur and the actual results may materially be different. Other events, which were not taken into account in formulating such projections, targets, or estimates, may occur and may significantly affect the returns or performance of any accounts and or funds managed by EPIC. To the extent this podcast contains information about specific companies or securities, including whether they are profitable or not, they are being provided as a means of illustrating our investment thesis. Past references to specific companies or securities are not a complete list of securities selected for clients, and not all securities selected for clients in the past year were profitable.